Shh, come now, fellow creepsters. Gather around and sit down. Donna and Carrie have amazing stories and surprises in store for us. We may hear a little about carbs and a lot about cocks, just the way we like it. <laughs> Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Sinister Sightings 82. And you just heard Bobby Joe. Um, and she write carbs and cocks. I mean, no truer statements. Exactly. If you want to introduce an episode and do an amazing job like Bobby Joe just did, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Okay, the first one is called One of My Haunted Stories. Hi ladies, I appreciate this podcast. I'm a fan of paranormal stories and a fan of true crime, so this is the perfect combo podcast. After listening to several stories, I decided to share just one of the many I have. A little background about me. Since I was a little girl, I have experienced plenty of paranormal activity. Nothing has been scary for me, but would definitely freak my mom out when she would come wake me up in the morning and have to listen to whatever visited me the night before. Through the years, she learned to get used to it as it was part of my daily life. Now that I'm older, it doesn't happen as much, but I still have weird experiences. Along with being a little more sensitive to the paranormal, I also have a spot-on gut. There have been so many times my gut feeling has been the right feeling, and I've saved my ass a few times. Truly, if I didn't listen to my gut, I wouldn't be here today. Now, as I said, I don't get too freaked out, but one night, I got scared And this is that story. It was a Friday night, and like any 15-year-old living in the city, I was in doing laundry. (laughs) (laughs) Soviet 25? Same. The building I was living in was an older building and was set up for low-income residents. There were plenty of deaths over the years in the building, but never anything that made its way to my apartment, as I lived there for several years at this point. I started off my night with an odd feeling that someone was coming. I had a feeling someone had the keys to my apartment, but knowing the people who lived there before me and knowing how long I had lived there, it didn't make sense. I tried to shake this feeling, but for some reason, I went to bed still thinking, someone can get in here. I fell asleep and woke up a few hours later to the sounds of the chairs turning into the dining table and the dishes being shuffled about. It was slightly alarming, but I thought, meh, it's fine. It's just a spirit. The sound stopped and I went back to bed. A few hours later, I woke up to a man, spirit, walking out of the bathroom. I sat up and that gut feeling from earlier was back. He was angry. What are you doing in my apartment? Trying to realize what was going on and wake up, I tried to respond, this is my place, what are you doing? The spirit comes around to the other side of my bed. Please, just get out of my place, you're scaring me, he yelled. Still, sitting up in bed and looking at him standing by the window, I tried to reason with him. Look around. This is my stuff. These are my things. You don't live here. He grabbed a pillow and started screaming into it. I shut my eyes as tight as I could and opened them to silence with the pillow on the floor. I tried to fall asleep, but that one had me shook. The next day, I reached out to the former property manager, asking if she knew anything about a previous tenant before my friends lived there. Immediately, she asked if I saw something. I explained the story, and she mentioned that makes sense, along with some advice for the next few days of handling and trying to get this guy to understand he didn't live here anymore. So back to the story. Apparently, the tenant was a paranoid schizophrenic who the property manager had to call an ambulance for one day. Of course, he said, I'll be back, don't worry. He went to the hospital and was there for a month. Throughout this time, he would call the property manager and ramble on and on to her. She was actually on the phone with him when he passed away. The following months, his family came to clean out the apartment. However, there was one thing they didn't have, his keys. So they had to use the building copy in order to get in. I can't help but think that the previous tenant finally made his way home using the key he had only to find me there. It would also make sense why I felt that someone had the keys. Thanks for listening to my long story. If you want to hear any more, I have plenty. Does anyone else remember picking their family before they were born? Anyways, keep up the good work. Thanks for the entertainment. Reese. 
Um, I don't remember, but I'm guessing you do, so I might need you to send that in. Right? I'm like, uh, yes. Can you just continue this email and tell me the story right now? Right? Also, how in the fuck were you so calm just to be like, no, man, this is my house. Right? Well, also, to be like, hmm, it's okay when you hear stuff in the dining room. I am too much of a Freddy cat. Literally, I hear Marley scratching sometimes, and I'm like, what is that? Uh What is that? And then, like, she stops, and I can hear her, like, breathing some, and I'm like, oh, she was just scratching hard or, like, biting herself. Maybe that's why I've never seen a ghost, because I can't handle it. Same. All right, next one. Hey, Carrie and Donna, I came across your podcast just a couple of weeks ago while looking for a comedy podcast that combines my two favorite things, the paranormal and true crime. Well, I listened to your most recent one about Savannah, and as a former resident of that beautiful city, I cannot help but make a correction. Oh, shit. Mm, I messed up real bad, I think. James Oglethorpe actually landed in Savannah in 1732, 40 years before the American Revolution. Sorry, y'all. I'm a stickler for details, especially historical details. I don't remember that story, but uh, sounds about right. If it's <laughs> numbers, I fucked that up. <laughs> Watch it be one of my stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, could have been worse. It could have been Paula and Gertrude all over again. True, true. Or my first blunder when I said uh, Bloody Mary was Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, well, let's just take it back to the first episode whenever I said it was uh, Dahmer and his name is pronounced Damer. So we started off yeah. strong. Yeah. But hey, thank you so much for letting us know because, again, I suck at dates. Yes. Thank you for telling us. And I was a history major. Let's just let that sink in. And now we know why I'm not a teacher. Yeah, that's why. (laughs) Not the hate kids and say the F word incessantly. No, none of those things. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? Okay, back to the email. I used to work at the Georgia Historical Society, and we had a ton of original manuscripts from that period. Also, if you want to do another Savannah haunting, I recommend the Moon River Brewing Company. So, yeah, see, it was mine, Carrie. I figured it was, but, like, why would I just talk about a town? Yeah. I did a couple of ghost hunts there, and let me tell you, you don't have to go looking for spirits. They find you. A brief background about the Moon River Brewing Company. It was built as a city hotel in the early 1800s, and during the yellow fever epidemic in the 1830s, the two top floors were used as a makeshift hospital and saw the deaths of many people the majority of which were children. The experiences I had there personally included being shoved by something in the kitchen so hard I hit the counter and had a nasty bruise. Upstairs, I sat on the floor and rolled a ball around, encouraging any children present to play with me. I felt gentle touches of little hands on my arms and back. No, thank you. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. Again, I don't like that soft touch. I mean, unless they were, like, scratching it or playing with my hair. Then I'd be cool with it. And not, like, in the three scratches way. Like, in the, like, (laughs) soft tickly kind. (laughs) I requested my hunt partner to take several photographs. The first one showed nothing. The following three showed little sparks of light. Not dust, actual light dancing around me. I was touched, prodded, and felt the angriest presence in the basement. There are stories of a man killing another man in the foyer over a gambling debt and a woman being pushed down the stairs. The people who tried renovating the top floors kept running into issues, with tools going missing, workers getting shoved, and all progress being stalled by interfering spirits. Eventually, the owners gave up and closed the top floors to the public other than ghost hunters and those with special permission. And y'all need to visit Savannah. The history and paranormal activity in that city are overwhelming. It has quite the tragic past, including several huge fires and several rounds of yellow fever. So, yes, do the Moon River Brewing Company or the Pirate's House. And they sent that from the website and didn't sign their name, so I don't know whether to say their name or not. Okay. I get enough fucking breezes without some damn spirit pushing me into something. And, of course, the angry spirits in the basement. Of course. Yeah, they're probably down there doing all the fucking laundry for everybody. (laughs) Let's go, and you do those stories. 
I want to do that, and I want to meet up with the ghost bros so they can pop my trunk. They can't pop yours because, you know, you with Colby. Colby pops my trunk. It's cool. Who says cool? (laughs) (laughs) What just flew out of my mouth? 1993 did. That's what happened. (laughs) Oh, that eagle screech. (laughs) All right. Hey, ladies. Jess here with a true crime story for y'all. This took place in what is now my parents' home in the great state of New Jersey. It all began in 1982 when 17-year-olds Jimmy and Marie became high school sweethearts. Ten years later in 1992, those two sweethearts would get married, and three years later after that, Jimmy, who worked construction, would become a police officer. Marie held a job as a bridge toll collector. Jimmy and Marie's marriage was not the happiest of marriages. It is said that Jimmy liked to drink and sometimes so much that he became violent. Marie and many others speak about how he would act violently towards Marie and belittle her. He would tell her things like he thinks more in one day than she thinks in a whole week. During fishing trips, if she forgot the bait, he would tell her she was a stupid bitch. Once, during a Poconos trip, she spilled grease and he slammed her into a table and berated her for 15 minutes straight. What the fuck? One of the bartenders at the bar he frequented said he once told a friend of theirs that, quote, he would bury her in the pines and nothing would happen to him because he was a cop. The lieutenant officer even refused to go on their annual fishing trip if he was going because of a violent outburst he had. Marie even confessed that one Valentine's Day after becoming enraged at a bar, he slammed her head into the passenger window multiple times. There are reports of her having bruises from what looked like being beat, but she would brush it off saying she ran into a door or something or even missing hair because he ripped it out. If all of that wasn't bad enough, they were having financial issues. Marie was in charge of the finances and made sure to hide these issues from Jimmy. This became increasingly difficult when they began to look for a new house. She went as far as drawing up a fake mortgage approval letter. Jimmy, however, was starting to become suspicious of it all. This became apparent when Jimmy came home intoxicated at 12.30 a.m. August 19, 1999, and started an argument with Maria about the phones not working and her causing a delay in the process of them getting a new home, which ended with him pointing his gun at her and telling her to straighten out or else. They didn't sleep together that night. Jimmy slept in their bed while Marie slept on the couch. What? At 7 a.m. that morning, Marie woke up with her plan. While Jimmy still lie asleep, Marie went to retrieve one of the guns in the home, loaded it, wrapped it in a t-shirt, and went into their bedroom, walked over to Jimmy, pointed the gun at the back of his head, and shot him. Marie hid the gun in the kitchen, then went to work. At 11.30 a.m., she finished her shift, dropped Jimmy's uniform off at the cleaners, and picked up pizza before heading back home. Once home at 12.30 p.m., she called 911. Not long after officers got there, she confessed and showed them the gun. Marie was then charged with murder of an officer, her husband. Different sites say different things. Not long after being charged, she was admitted into a forensic psych hospital for suicidal thoughts. There, she was diagnosed with battered wife syndrome. Once released, she agreed to a plea agreement of a guilty plea of aggravated manslaughter, which would lessen her sentence at least four and a half years from a murder charge. But with this agreement, her and her counsel could not seek a lesser sentence, nor could they appeal the judge's conviction. So on June 22, 2001, Marie was sentenced to 30 years in prison, serving 25 and a half without a chance for parole. A few years after being sentenced, her and her defense petitioned for a retrial because her rights were violated, which ended up with her in 2011 being sentenced to 26 years. There was a lot more legal stuff that went on, but confuses the shit out of me, so that's the Cliff Notes version. Jess, was that an episode of Forensic Files where they like were trying to prove the way that the gun was held or something like that? I can't remember. I feel like it was. That's heartbreaking, though. Yeah, that's the kind of case I don't want to be on the jury. But also, I'm with you. Sometimes it's very hard to understand the legal shit that goes on with these cases. Because it's like, wait, she said she couldn't appeal or anything like that, but yet she went back to court like how, you know? This next one is my mom's very haunted childhood. 
Hello, ladies. I have just started binging your podcast and I'm only on episode 16, but I think it's fantastic and can't wait to hear more. I just heard your first Sinister Sighting episode and I thought I would share a few stories from my mom's childhood. There are plenty. My parents grew up extremely poor in a very small rural town in North Carolina. So all through our childhoods, my brother and I were constantly reminded of how lucky we were that we didn't have to work the tobacco and cotton fields during the summer breaks from school and make the terrifying trip in the middle of the night to the outhouse if you were unlucky enough to have to pee once the sun went down. Having an outhouse would be Carrie's nemesis. Nightmare. Yes. <laughs> All right. My mom spent her teenage years in a particularly modest country house at the end of a very long and winding dirt driveway with no street lights and surrounded by woods. They lived on the property owned by the farmer that my grandfather worked for as a farmhand. She used to tell me stories about how they experienced poltergeist activity, such as hearing pots and pans and silverware clanging onto the floor in the middle of the night only to run into the kitchen and find nothing out of place. Items would go missing constantly and never be found or be found in odd places, such as the broom she was just using mysteriously ending up in another room when she was home alone, or silverware going missing for months and then found in the backyard still shiny and clean. One story gave me nightmares for years in which one night their dog Brownie, who unfortunately lived outside, tied to a post because these were country folk and dogs didn't belong inside. He wouldn't stop viciously barking at something outside. My mom was about 16 at the time, and she had two younger brothers who were about 15 and 13. They were all too afraid to go outside and see what was happening. My mom describes hearing Brownie bark and bark and bark, then let out a loud yelp and nothing but silence for the rest of the night. The next morning, emboldened by the comfort that daylight brings, they told my granddad what happened and he went outside to inspect. Brownie was nowhere to be found and my granddad just assumed that he had run off. Fast forward a few years when they were moving from the house and cleaning up junk in the backyard, they came across the old stake that Brownie had been tied to and realized that the chain was still attached but embedded in the ground. They dug up the chain, which was also still shiny with no rust or corrosion, and found not only Brownie's collar at the end of it, but his full skeleton. What? My mom says it was as if something had dragged Brownie into the ground. Keep in mind, this was a perfectly healthy dog that had no reason to just drop dead on his own. Plus, my grandfather did not see his body the morning he went out to inspect, nor did anyone find him for years after. Whatever caused Brownie's death happened that night, and somehow he ended up under the ground. But wait, there's more. I kind of hope not about the dog, because this is very, 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 very sad. Right? And scary. When my mom and her brothers were much smaller, she didn't give me an age, but I'm assuming elementary-aged... They shared a bedroom because poor. The middle child, who has always been more sensitive to paranormal stuff, would often tell her about a creepy old man with bad breath who would stand over them at night. My uncle said he would lean over my mom's face and she would just roll over. Then the old man would move to his bed, lean over him, and breathe his foul breath in his face while grinning. And then he would pull the covers off of him. When my mom asked what he would do at that point, he simply said, I pull them back over me and go to sleep. Brave or stupid? Jury's still out on that one. Anyway, here's the terrifying part. Um, I'm sorry. All of this has been terrifying. They had a front porch that stretched the entire length of the house. On one end, underneath one of the front room windows, they kept a stack of firewood. My mom was about 19 years old at this point. On several occasions, they would hear footsteps come onto the porch and then what sounded like pieces of firewood being moved. Now, they did have bobcats and the occasional bear, but my mom said the noises would always be accompanied by this heavy sense of dread that would keep her from even looking out the window to see what it might be. 
so no one would ever inspect what the cause was until one night it happened when my granddad was home. He thought it might be one of their distant neighbors sneaking up there in the cover of night to steal their wood, so he decided to go out and confront him. They all heard the sound of very heavy footsteps coming up the steps of the porch, walking over to the woodpile and the sound of wood being moved. My grandfather, who never believed or experienced any of the supernatural happenings, and who was actually a very mild-tempered and soft-spoken man who rarely ever cursed, ran out onto the porch to catch the bandit. A few moments passed, and my granddad walked slowly back into our house, eyes wide and face ashen as though in a trance. When my grandmother asked him what it was, his only reply was, Joe, my grandma's nickname, we gotta get the fuck out of this house. Until the day he died, my grandfather never spoke of what he saw outside of that house. It wasn't until years later that my mom got an idea of what it could have been. So one night when my parents are regaling my brother and I with one of these horrifying tales from their past, my dad mentions the night that he showed up to take her out on one of his surprise dates that my mom gave no consent to. We're now deep into the 70s, so my dad shows up in his wood-paneled station wagon, complete with the purple interior and disco ball hanging from the rearview mirror. I guess cotton picking pays pretty well. He throws his bell-bottom leg out of the driver's side door, platform shoes hitting the dirt driveway, ducking his head low as not to hit his perfectly crafted afro on the doorframe. It's nighttime, and there are no streetlights, so his only source of light comes from one of the house windows. When he first pulled up, he said he absently noticed a very tall structure at the back corner of the house. His first thought was that it was a tree, but then quickly remembered they didn't have any trees on that side of the house, and certainly none that tall. It was dark and silhouetted, but accompanied by a very heavy sense of dread. He says the only thing he could hear in his mind was, don't look at it. Don't look at it. He said he got a strong impression that if he looked fully at it, something very bad would happen. He said whatever it was stood as still as a statue, but he knew it was something alive and evil. He ran for my mom's front door and pounded on it until she let him in. He said he never looked fully at it and at the time had no idea what it was, but today he is convinced it was a Bigfoot. That's right. My dad thinks he witnessed the Squatch Man himself. When he was leaving the house, he asked my mom to walk him out, and he got the nerve to look in the direction where the shadowy figure had been, and absolutely nothing was there. So definitely not a tree or any kind of inanimate object. It's interesting to note that as my dad was telling me the story again recently, I could literally see the fear on his face and could tell he was feeling that same sense of dread he felt that night. He said the whole experience lasted maybe 45 seconds, but has been burned into his brain, and he can feel exactly what he felt that night, even though it's almost been 40 years. Was at home a supernatural paranormal hotspot like the Skinwalker Ranch? Did they live on some kind of otherworldly portal? Was Bigfoot too lazy to cut his own goddamn firewood? Will we ever know what happened to Brownie? These are the questions I must have answers to. Anyway, sorry for the length, but I hope you enjoyed. I have many more stories to tell if you're interested, like two uncles who were possessed or plagued by demons, and a devil-worshipping great-grandfather who murdered his wife. You guys are awesome, and I'm going back to binging your old episodes now. Ray. Okay, Bigfoot was not what I was expecting. Right? I will tell you that the man, the old man, who, like, bent over them, Mm -mm. the kids, uh uh-uh, That reminded me of, like, the bent neck lady on Haunting of Hill House, and that terrified me. Oh. Send all of your stories in, girl. Absolutely. The next one is called Crosses. Hello, ladies. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now, and it's helped me get through my morning runs and car rides to work. My boyfriend keeps telling me I need to send in my story about my great-grandparents' house. So, here it is. A quick background on my family. I'm half German and half Hispanic, so both sides are very religious. This is significant to the story I'm about to tell you. 
The story is about my Hispanic side, my dad's family, and his parents' house that no longer stands but still creeps me out when I drive by the land. I apologize if this is somewhat long. I remember the house very distinctly and the stories my papa, grandpa, would tell me. It was quite large and had a basement. This is in the Central Valley of California, so not very many houses have basements, with four bedrooms and three bathrooms. It was on about 15 acres of land with olive trees everywhere. In the basement was a pool table and some old arcade games. As kids, my cousins and I weren't allowed down there, so we had to stay in the living room. My great-grandma and grandma would always watch us while we hung out watching TV and such. But whenever we needed to use the restroom, we had to go with an adult because there was a room at the end of the hall that was always locked and no one was allowed into. The adult was with us to make sure we didn't try to break into the room. Of course, as kids, my cousins and I were very curious about what was in the room, so we would try to peek under the door to see inside, but it was always covered by something. One day, we were over for a party, and I had to use the restroom. I couldn't find anyone to go with me, but I saw my dad walk down the hall with my papa, and I obviously followed. When I turned the corner, they were standing there with a weird look on their faces. And me, being about five years old, couldn't quite figure out why until I looked down the hall and saw the room's door, the forbidden room's door, open. My dad said he had never even seen inside of the room either until that day. When we walked inside, there were crosses everywhere. Think about the movie The Conjuring 2. There was also molding boxes filled with Lord knows what, old candles, and rosary beads. My papa said it was the room his mother used to pray in, but hadn't seen it since he was in his late teens, so about 65 years ago. They both told me I was never allowed to share what I saw in that room. Being in a pretty religious family, it creeped me out because I've never seen that many crosses on a single wall, let alone a single room. To this day, I still haven't seen anything like that except for in movies. I even thought about talking to a friend who is a pastor about it, but my boyfriend just said it would scare him too much and he would never come around to see us again. Later on that day, my great-grandma asked me why I went to that room. She was nowhere near us at the time, and neither my dad or papa told her about it. As a kid, that freaked me out. How in the hell did she know the three of us walked in and saw that room? I told my dad, and we ended up coming clean about what we saw and why we walked in. I distinctly remember her saying, the door must have been open because my great-grandpa thought we needed to see that room. Sounds kind of suspicious if you ask me, as I had never met my great-grandpa, but knew he was a very religious man. The rosary beads we saw were actually my great-great-grandpa's rosary beads. A few years later, my great-grandma gifted the rosary beads we saw to my parents and me. A month after that, she passed away, and shortly after she passed, the house was demolished. My parents still have the rosary beads locked up in a safe, and I'm still too scared to take them myself. Now, when we drive by the lot, I still can't get that picture out of my head of all of those crosses up on the wall. We still do not know how that door opened or what that room was really used for. My dad, Papa, and myself haven't told the story to anyone and probably won't for a very long time. We know that my grandma and my aunt, who are both Catholic, would think something else of it. So that's my story of my great-grandparents' creepy cross room. I have some other ghost stories about the Kearney Mansion and the Wolf Creek Manor, as well as a well-known murder that happened around here. I'll save those for another time. Thank you for your stories and bringing joy to my days. Creep it real, Katie Lynn. Um, I can picture that room, and it's terrifying. Yeah, I just picture it like dark with like a little bit of light shining through a window, but like not a lot, but it's really dusty mm-hmm. and crosses. But like, how'd your grandma know y'all saw it? Right? Hey, ladies, I love your podcast. I feel like y'all are my besties to the point where I was listening to your podcast on speaker and my son came in and said, sorry, I didn't know you were talking to your friends. Oh, anyway, my story is about my beloved grandma. She was my everything. We lived in Southern California until I was about 10 and she lived a few blocks away. I loved weekends at her apartment, and we spent every moment we could with each other. She spoiled me, and I literally thought I was a princess and got whatever I wanted. She was my goddess, and I adored her, and she adored me. 
We ended up moving to Northern California when I was 10. My grandma went to live with my uncle in Sacramento, and we, my mom, five-year-old brother, and my 15-year-old sister, went to live with my auntie in Napa, which is about two hours away, the farthest I have ever been from her. I was devastated. Being away from her was just excruciating. She was my everything. I spent the summer with her, and I'm glad I did. It was perfect, and it was my last time with her. My mom picked me up, and I cried the entire time. I was 12 and just felt deep despair as we drove the two hours home. My mom thought I was being dramatic. I guess I knew in my heart that was it. A few months later, this part is fuzzy to me, but my mom and auntie had to go get her one night. When they got to her apartment, they knew they had to take her to the hospital. She was diabetic and had other complications. My grandma asked my mom to take her to our house. She wanted to see me and spend the night with us, but my mom said no. She knew she was too sick, and they took her to the hospital in our town. I asked to go see her, and my mom said no. I didn't know, but she was in the ICU and was suffering heart and kidney failure. My grandma told my mom that I just couldn't see her that way. I was angry and was just hurting in my heart to see her. I had no idea she was so sick. She had been in the hospital several times before, but it was only a few days and she always came back to me. I was standing in line in the morning at school, typical Napa morning, foggy and cold. All of a sudden, I felt so warm, like a warm, cozy hug, and I heard myself say, I love you too, Grandma. And my words shocked me. The sun was shining through a tiny hole in the fog, and I was like, whoa. The rest of the day was normal, and my child brain didn't think anything of it. That same day, we got home from school, and my mom wasn't home. Strange. We got a call a little while later from my mom asking that me and my brother and sister go to my auntie's house. She lived a few blocks away. We walked down thinking what could possibly be happening. This is really out of the ordinary. We got to my auntie's house and my mom said, I have something to tell you guys. I don't know why, but I say, what, did my grandma die? My mom looked shocked and said, yes, she died this morning. I obviously lost my shit. I ran. I ended up in my auntie's greenhouse in her yard. I don't remember running or why I went there. That morning, my class began at 8.15 a.m. We had to stand outside in line until the bell rang. My grandma passed at 8.11 a.m. I know that was her hugging me goodbye and telling me that she loved me. I am 100% convinced. I know she loved me as much as I loved her because within minutes of her leaving this world, she came right to me to hug me one last time. We loved to cozy each other, and I hear in my soul her tell me she loved me, and I responded to her out loud. It's been over 20 years, and my heart still aches for her. I'm sad she will never cozy my boys, but I'm so happy we were able to say goodbye in a way and we had our last loving embrace. Thanks, ladies, for all you do. I'll share another story that is creepy AF, Amber A. Wow, that's so precious. Like, and I don't mean like that in like a condescending, like, oh my God. No, like that's a precious moment. Yeah, it. that's amazing. Hello, Donna and Carrie and Bo and Marley. It's your neighborhood long-winded bitch back at it again with a sinister sewings. Which is probably a bad pun, but you can be the judge of that. Circa 2014, when I came back from Boston, I moved in with my mom. She was living in a cute little single-wide on the edge of this huge property where she was a caretaker for the land. So me, my mama, and our three fur babies lived there. Phoebe, or Jack Russell Yorkie, was my girl. She slept with me every night, and despite her size, 13 pounds, she was the best guard dog because she would always alert the other two, Maggie, our extra-large slice of chocolate lab, and Ozzy, our four-pound old man dog. And by alert, I mean bark her little ass off until the cows come home. Phoebe would always start cuddling beside me on a mountain of pillows and eventually retire to laying on my feet. This particular night, I was studying in my room. It was pretty late for me at the time, around 1 a.m. Being on the third shift now, bedtime is 4 to 5 a.m. And my mom had been sleeping for a while. 
So picture it, a queen-size bed in a small-ass trailer bedroom with just enough room to open the door fully without fucking with the foot of my bed. My bed is in the top left corner of the room against the window. I've got a clear path from my side of the bed, about 18 inches wide, around the bottom of the bed to the door. Not much walking room. We're cramped. I gotta keep my shit tidy, being a medium to large pizza and a space fit for a personal pan pizza. I digress. One of my favorite space savers was this really cool, hefty, over-the-door coat hanger. It had eight knobs on the top and four two-tier hooks in between the knobs made of thick, heavy, stainless steel. It housed my coats and jackets, empty bags and purses, belts, and apron, Cracker Barrel aprons, and had three thick, flat, bent-angle hooks that went over the top of the door and extended down about four inches for weight distribution. When the door was closed, there was not much room for it to lift as it fit quite snug. In addition to its very useful utility powers, it was my favorite color, green. I've got my books sprawled across my bed, papers and notes running amok, Hulu going on in the background, and Phoebe at my feet. She raises her head and tilts it to the side, staring at the door. I tell her to pipe down, it's probably just a sewer monster, another story for another day, and she listens. A few minutes later, I heard this weird scratch noise, and it was quite distinctive from the sewer monster, as he normally made noise at whichever wall was closest to my head. This time, it came from outside my door. My door led into a small hallway, and the living room and the kitchen separated me and my mama's room. Directly outside of my door was an old antique sewing machine that had been in my family for several generations. My mama actually learned to sew on it, and so did her mama. The actual machinery folded inside of the stand to create a flat surface to be used as a little table. My mama has the exact same one. It had a small, shallow drawer for bobbins and threads. On top of the table was my mama's new, improved, expensive, heavy-ass machine. Underneath were two different storage boxes with threads, bobbins, and other assorted whatever-the-fuck-you-sew-with stuff. I did not inherit the seamstress gene. Both of these boxes had lids that would break your will and your fingernails, not easily fucking opened when you needed something. I hear the noise again, this time a little louder, but still muffled. I continued to study for a few more minutes, but then got a really weird tingly feeling. I lay down my pencil and Phoebe is starting a low grumble. I quietly hush her and my arm hair stands on end. As soon as I realized what the sound may be, it had a quick smack against the door, but the sound continued. It rolled down the door and had a cushioned thud as it hit the floor. At this point, me and Phoebes are doing the confused puppy head tilt in unison and my blood goes cold. I can feel the tension building, but I still don't know what's happening. I pick up my phone and immediately call my mama. She's up and laughing at how hard I was panicking, mocking my love of the paranormal and taunting me saying, Oh, piss, you ain't afraid of the little ghost, are you? Yes, my mother is clearly targeting me. She too says, Well, the sewer monster must have gotten brave. You'll be fine. I put her on speakerphone and lay it on my bed and crawl to the foot for a closer inspection. With both hands and knees on my bed, I craned my neck out as far as my heavy self would allow me without tipping over, and Phoebes is stretched out sniffing under my arm. At that exact moment, I hear some rustling in the hall, and then whoosh, the loudest, heaviest, fucking thrashing noise, like when a heavy door slams into a wall. And that damn rolling noise continued. I fall back on my ass, crumble all my papers, and Phoebe starts up, just barking her damn head off. I go into panic mode. My coat hanger violently falls to the ground. Whatever hit the door was thrown with such force that the door bounced inwards a little bit and the coat hanger just fell. At first, it fell sideways and then did the windshield wiper move, but instead of returning the kinetic motion, it drops. All the things just fall. I let out a pretty pitiful screech. I totally forget about my mom on the phone until I hear her say in your best Southern mama voice, what in the hell was that? 
Thinking that she heard the whole mess, I frantically explained that something just threw her sewing machine at my door, and there was probably a whole mess in the hall, and that I was too afraid to open the door, and she needed to come here quick. I'm damn near crying for her like a lost kid, and she is laughing her ass off. She said, no, no, what kind of noise did you just make? Mom, I am so serious right now. Come check the hall. She reluctantly agrees, and the other dogs are in tow. Phoebe is shaking, and I wait until I hear her footsteps before moving the pile of once neatly hung shit away from the door. You know, just in case something was to weasel through the gap at the bottom of the door and the floor. As I move the stuff, my door swings open. My mom stands off to the side and pushes it open, so the first thing I see is not her or the howling sound, but just nothing. To my absolute shock, There is nothing there. Cue the meme with the dude standing there with the the what-the-fuck look on his face with the question marks flying all around his head. The internet calls it confused Nick Young meme. It's worth a Google. So I'm plopped on the end of my bed, just dumbfounded because nothing was out of place on her sewing stand. All the crates were neatly stacked, just like always, and there were no loose spools lying around. But yo, that shit really just happened in front of my damn face. What the actual fuck? My mom is now convinced I am on drugs and wants to know what's in my cigarettes. A regular fallback as always trying to make a wacky-backy joke. But I'm so shook, she quickly drops the mockery and asks if I was sure that the door moved. She says, maybe the hook of your coat rack fell and it slid down the door. Workable theory, but quickly dismissed when I bent over and picked it up to find all the hooks were still perfectly intact and undisturbed. Not even the slightest bit bent, and there were no chips, dings, or dents in the door. It's been about six years since that happened, and I still can't wrap my head around what the actual fuck I witnessed, or what Phoebe was sensing when she started her growl. But I can tell you that night at 23, I shamelessly cuddled up to my mama with all three fur balls and slept like a baby. Thanks for reading my long-ass story. I hope the bad pun made sense. Happy International Women's Month to two fantastic ladies that keep me going, encourage my antics, and happily give all of us spooksters a safe place to vent, bitch, share, and fear fart. Edit. I typed this up in March and forgot to send it in. Love, Dana. Oh my gosh. Well, one, Carrie, I love your Southern Mama voice. Thank you. Very good. Two, my mom had a sewing thing like that but she didn't use it she got it at a garage sale (laughs) uh my mama had one and i think she learned to sew on it but she don't sew and i love the pun you know i love the pun oh we are very punny people (laughs) the final story is the wicked witch that never got a house dropped on him hey carrie and donna greetings and salutations from your resident witch with tales to tell firstly thank you for all the laughs that you've given me after a long day at work The ambient stories have me full-on cackle. I've listened for a while, and I cannot tell you the relief of knowing that there are people with similar events to my own. The community you two have created is a beautiful one. Thank you. Now, enough with the sappy shit. Here is the most memorable, sinister sighting I've had to date. Get ready. It's a long one. I'm also going to change all the names in this story, so you can call me Janie. Back in my freshman year of high school, I had just gotten out of an emotionally abusive relationship that ended with him in an asylum and me with little to no friends. No one wanted to interact with the girl that dated the Michael Myers impersonator. Yes, you read that correctly. Yes, I will send in a separate story about him if you would like. I'll just say this now. Yes, send that story in. This story isn't about him, though. I just want you to understand where my mind was when it all began. I was by myself going into high school and was desperate for any kind of friendship. Enter Jude, the skinny redhead who was the intimidating kind of smart. To this day, I'm not entirely sure why he wanted to be friends with me, because I'm not exactly the brightest crayon in the Crayola box. It didn't seem like Jude cared about those things, though. He took me into his friend group. We were a group of four. Me, Oscar, who used to sing me Spanish lullabies. Matt, who later also became another abusive boyfriend. And Jude, who was a witch. 
I remember thinking how fucking cool it was. Just saying the word would send an electric thrill up my spine. Some time has gone by and I finally get the courage to ask him, and I finally get the courage to ask him to teach me how to be a witch. I remember his response as clear as day, but you already are one. I can feel it. That's the way Jude was, always fucking ominous. So he began to teach me charms, protection spells, and the foundation of witchcraft. It became my favorite activity, and Jude was always so patient and kind to me. I never expected things to go wrong. Fast forward a year and a half later, it is in the middle of our sophomore year, and we're in a group of tight-knit friends who had each other's back. Jude and I were in the library reading up on how to access past lives when a purple-haired girl passed us with the most contagious smile. I didn't know her name, but I knew she was in my theater class and a junior. I remember looking to Jude, who I'd never seen surprised, much less awestruck. He asked me if I could talk to her later on and see if she was single. Being the homie that I am, when I went to my theater class the next day, I introduced myself and found the sweet girl to be very friendly and kind. Her name was Stacy, and she wanted to be a psychologist and was a big daddy's girl. Remember this for later. I asked her if she wanted to have lunch with my friends, and that was all it took. Stacy meshed with us so well, and I was glad to finally have another girl in the group. It wasn't long after that that we found out Stacy was already a practicing witch. This made us closer than ever. Stacy and I would paint beauty glamours on our nails and leave healing sigils around the school. Now, this is where things took a turn. Jude finally made his move, and him and Stacy began to casually see each other. This lasted maybe a month before Stacy decided things were getting too intense too fast. Jude, who rarely got told no, became obsessed. Every time we all hung out, he would ask why Stacy didn't want to be with him, and it really brought down the energy of the group. Jude and I were in the library again when I came upon him reading a book that I'm sure began with the word curse. Jokingly, I slid into the seat next to him with a laugh. Who are you trying to curse? Before I could even finish the sentence, Jude snapped the book shut and slid it into his backpack, retrieving a book on astral projection. No one. It's just good to read up on everything to know what you want to practice and what you don't want to practice. I should have prodded some more, but I let it go because Jude did like to research multiple topics at once, so I let it be. A few weeks later, I noticed that Stacy seemed skittish and fidgety. When I asked what was wrong, she told me that she began having dreams about Jude and started to wonder if she made the right decision by breaking up with him. While Jude was my friend, I'm a girl's girl and told her if she wasn't feeling it, faking it would only hurt the both of them. This seemed to suffice, but things became weird. Not even a month after that, we all discovered that Stacy's father had fallen ill. Cancer in his stomach or liver, I can't remember too well. The group was supportive. We went over to her house to watch movies and to make comfort food. However, the way Jude was acting felt off. He didn't seem sad for Stacy. He seemed almost impressed, if not a little smug. Then I remembered the book he was reading nearly a month ago, and a nasty thought crossed my mind. I waited until Jude and I had a moment alone to ask, This is gonna sound dumb, and I know I'm probably being a weirdo, but you... you didn't cast on Stacy, did you? Jude just looked at me, and I felt sick with the accusation I had just thrown. All he said was, Of course I didn't, and if I was angry enough to curse someone... You wouldn't know about it. Weeks turned into months, and Stacy's father was getting worse, and Stacy picked up a drug habit. I couldn't shake the feeling that Jude had a hand in all of this. So, with Stacy's permission, I performed a protection ritual over her house and sealed it with a truth spell. Here's when things go absolutely batshit. In the following days, Stacy had been cleaning her house and found a patchwork doll under the sink in her family bathroom. It was filled with rusty nails and stitched with red thread across the stomach. 
Rightfully so, Stacy flipped out on all of us trying to figure out who had put the doll in her house because we all concurred it magic related. When no one fessed up, Stacy went over the edge and became a party girl. She stopped speaking to us and began drinking and smoking whatever she could get her hands on. I felt so helpless because deep inside of me, I knew who was responsible. But there's no way to prove your first real friend cursed the ever-loving shit out of your new friend and her family. I did all I could, made her mom laugh when it seemed so useless, walked her baby sister to school, and I even began leaving the healing sigils around her property. My efforts, however, were not enough because after, I believe, nine months of fighting the rapid cancer, Stacy's father passed away. I know there's a chance that it was just her father's time and these things just happened, but I can't shake the feeling of when they began to happen and how quickly his cancer grew. Everyone has their own beliefs on what happened, but in my gut, I know Jude had a hand in it. I just can't prove it. We all went our separate ways, and I never heard from any of the group again until my sophomore year in college. Oscar had called and asked me to watch out for Jude, who was transferring into my school and wouldn't have any friends. Funny how the tables turn, huh? I hadn't told any of them where I was planning on going, and I had went to a school a few states away. Those memories overpowered me so much that after a wicked panic attack, I had dropped out of the university and packed my bags. It may seem silly, but I couldn't imagine him being that close to me and have something similar happen again. When I did come home, I began to dream of Jude, but I couldn't even call it that. I was so aware of his presence and energy, I'm not entirely certain it was a dream at all. I had learned a lot more since the death of Stacy's father and began to shield my house, and I haven't heard from him since. I'm sure you're wondering what happened to Stacy. After her father's funeral, she reached out to me to see if I would come over and participate in a ritual for her family that would inspire new beginnings. Since then, she is happily married, sober, with two beautiful children. As for me, I just enrolled back in college. Sincerely, Janie. Holy shit. That is a great movie right there. That, that's the fucking craft. Oh my God. Whew. Holy I, shit. I don't know, Jude, but he did it. <laughs> Allegedly. Well, and was he astral projecting all those times y'all thought y'all were dreaming of him? Right? Fuck, that's heavy. These All these stories were heavy this week. Yes. Oh my gosh. But we really do appreciate y'all sharing them all. Yes. So, obviously, I was crying at the end of that story from Amber, but I wanted to say that moment where you said, I knew she loved me as much as I loved her because within minutes of her leaving this world, she came right to me to hug me one last time. Like, whew. Mm-hmm. Whew. And that y'all cozy each other, like, all of that. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, sorry. I couldn't comment on the story then, but I love that. A lot of these were with family. Mm-hmm. Like, even this last one was with Stacy's family and her mom. <laughs> Stacy's mom. Oh, God. <laughs> Just kidding. But as Janie, like, we, our friends are our chosen family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very appropriate as we're heading into the holiday season. Mm-hmm. And not everyone has wonderful relationships with their families. And so just remember to set up boundaries so that the toxicity doesn't seep into your life. Thank y'all for sharing such intimate and precious stories with us. We appreciate it so much. And remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get scared. scared.